Welcome to General Depravity. seem uh smart so i'm gonna ask you how do i make fuck you money fuck you money um define fuck you money i suppose just enough where you never have to look at like a receipt again <laughs> um commit fraud that's the only way right uh, there are other ways there are multiple i mean you is can it, is there find- any way where you can keep like your moral compass intact I mean, you can find a niche uh, somewhere, uh, some service that isn't provided, like Netflix did. They're like, hey, people are doing this illegally, you know, so we're going to license this and then offer a platform for it, you know? That works. Innovation, you know, finding... Is that a good model to find, like, an illegal market and try to legitimize it? That works, yeah. I mean, I think think, um, in terms of streaming services, the person who finds... A way to legally profiteer off of streaming old video games, if that makes sense, because there's a lot of sites that do it. But once a platform like Gamefly comes out that lets you do something like that, I'm sure they're going to make... Because you're going to never have to buy an SNES again if you want to feel like you're not robbing from the market. You know what I mean? You can just... Yeah, well, eh. Sony recently, they I think they bought one out and killed it or something. Yeah, the technology's there. There's, um, like, emulators that run in Java, I guess, or, or whatever else. You know, there's a lot of other things. Um, if you're not concerned about your moral compass, you can always commit, like, you know, high-frequency uh, fraud. Um, there are those types of trading algorithms that completely manipulate prices and skew the market. So there's all types of ways, you know. So you but, know all uh, about this stuff? Yeah, I do. Uh, you can start a lawnmower business. You know, lawn or mow lawns rather, or that's you so, know, that's so far from, lemonade stands. So that's far something. from tempting, though. <laughs> there's just no appeal in that. You know, there's just uh, it would be very difficult to find pride in yourself. But isn't the market this weird thing where it's basically it works like its own AI now, like its own self-manifested algorithm? Depends on the market. That's true in uh, stock exchanges uh, because a lot of the algorithms that they actually have in place trade pretty much uh, milliseconds once they see any sort of changes on the market. I mean, there was a time when if a price were to plummet or something like that, there would just be a time discrepancy. You know what I mean? Like back in the 20s or 30s, you would, uh, a price would plummet and... Okay, so what were you saying before that interruption? <laughs> um, yeah. That's an interesting thing. I mean, that whole um, function of what day traders used to do is kind of automated by just those algorithms. And once upon a time, people had to watch the tickers incessantly. Now you can have a program that can monitor uh, input, like just uh, changes in a stock price. If it goes up or down, you can automatically set a condition where 
you would have a buy order or a sell order once it hits a threshold or once there's any sort of movement in that whatsoever. You know what I mean? Does that so, make it a fluid market? Does that uh, make it easier it, to predict? I mean, sorry, what do you mean? Just like, like considering how, how much uh, like these programs are influencing the market, does that make it more predictable or less? That's well, that's an interesting question. Uh, I think in any uh, model of sort of uh, in any sort of theoretical model of how markets should operate. It's never entirely foolproof. There's always an X variable that can't be seen. And uh, I think we see tremendous price instability right now, but it's hard. It, the, all of these systems are so entangled because on top of you have these um, these high-frequency algorithms running and doing these types of functions, but at the same time, you have a monetary system that doesn't really function towards actual price discovery. So there's a lot of price instability already. Uh, and it's hard to discern, I guess, where that comes from. You know what I mean? Okay. In the most predictable scenario, the most predictable market, what would you say the margin of uh, unpredictability is? What percentage? It's, uh, it's hard to account. I would say things that the most unpredictable markets would probably be things related to financial services. Uh, things like what we saw with the asset back or mortgage backed securities, uh, a couple years back. Uh, things that are more, in, uh, more based primarily in scarcity, like, um, agricultural development or something like that. There's less of a margin of error because they're dealing with earth and so not, where's you know, the, where's the safe spot? If you can think um, of any. They're just, they're, there is none, really. I mean, not in this market right now. And, and I mean, there, it, there, are, there are sensible investments that one can make if you just time it right. I mean, if you if you time into the market correctly, like if you see something coming up and you're like, this is going, this is going to be very popular, and you invest in it and you get a return on that investment, uh, that's because you on you would you would I guess inherently understand that this product is going to be successful, um, but. To those individuals who kind of play the market, I think that there are, there are, I mean, there are, low, obviously there are, are low risk, uh, low yield, uh, investment options. Uh, things like, uh, traditionally bonds serve that function. Uh, but uh, honestly, I mean, we're dealing very much into the technical aspects of, uh, of stock trading in my specialty, I mean, my, my specialty, I'm not, I'm a fucking armchair economist. And I'm not, <laughs> at the risk of being called a charlatan, I should probably stress the fact that I'm a musician and this is all yeah, a yeah. hobby for me. But, uh, I mean, I'm, I think... I'm much more placed an emphasis on monetary policy than probably the, the, I guess the innate or the very, uh, the detailed aspects of stock trading. So, but, but I, I mean, in terms of just like low risk, um, there, there are, you know, there's a wealth of things. Uh, hard assets, uh, traditionally, and even now, have, and especially when you compare that towards um, monetary instability, those are typically sensible investments, long-term investments. Uh, land, not necessarily mortgages, but just land, you know, is, is always a, uh, a sensible investment. So there are things out there, you know, but um, there's a lot of but traps. I'm too. also thinking that even if there was... Like a a market that was a sure deal that would quickly fix itself. 
where it wouldn't be a short deal much longer. Yeah, that's that's the nature of a bubble, you know. And we've seen this time and time and again in the past you know, twenty years, uh, the dot com bubble. So uh, in other words, don't something. mess with it unless you really know your shit. Yeah, I mean, everyone everyone is saying like, hey, this is a short thing, and as a result, the you know the amount of money that flows into it is disproportionate to what the market's actually worth. You know what I mean? If you if you have if you're and this is kind of exasperated by, um, the change in the nature of which stock options are actually offered. There was a time when it was it wasn't so leveraged. Um, even after two thousand eight, the lever- uh, so leveraging meaning like you can you can only really borrow against what you have. You know what I mean. So when you're essentially selling stock, you're lending. Uh, in, in, you know, in, in a certain capacity. Uh, and that was traditionally the function of stock. Um, but, uh, when, so, I mean, now that um, companies can really ratchet up their leverage from like to uh, a one to a thousand ratio, you can really ratchet up that leverage towards where the amount of stock that you're selling doesn't necessarily correlate to what you have. You know, so if it, if it doesn't get grossly overappreciated in that kind of bubble, then there would be absolutely no capacity for you to pay back your principal investors. You know, so it's it's a it's a fucking mixed bag, really. And the nature of not even of the nature of just the way that it's set up legally, you know, is very uh, complicates the issue tremendously to the point where um, even a good business uh, struggles. In a dishonest market, you know, yeah, uh, a good business, like... a good business, or an honest business struggles staying honest in a dishonest market. Essentially, is I guess the simplest way that I could put that. It just so, seems like with all the lack of regulations, it's a time bomb waiting to happen. Is that the impression you get? It depends on the market too. I mean, I think, uh, and Jim Records has been saying this for a couple of years, and he's an economist that I respect tremendously. And he does foresee. A global economic collapse, but that doesn't necessarily mean like Weimark inflation and or like hyperinflation and the sky is falling. We've had three uh, global economic collapses in the past century. And all it means is that the country is going to sit down like Bretton Woods in 46 and kind of reformulate uh, how international finance works. Um, what this means, why this is disadvantageous for people who live in this country in the United States is that we're probably not going to be on the winning end of that this time. Um, in 46, uh, I'm going to go on a bit of a fucking historical rant. Uh, in 46, um, Britain Woods was, uh, established. Uh, the dollar was established as the global reserve currency. In any market, if you were, if you were in Libya and you were trying to buy grain from Syria, you had to use the dollar to purchase that, you know? You had that. That's it, it, the dollar has remained in international finance and international exchange as the intermediary currency for which every other currency is priced. Um, this is why the dollar has retained its sort of economic superiority and why a lot of people have, and rightfully so, made the claim about economic imperialism, especially in the past decade, when we've engaged in sort of uh, um, uh, quantitative easing. Uh, to a the gross extent that we have been, and 
the effect that has on some of the poorest people in the world is fucking devastating, and that's not something that gets brought up enough in discourse, but it really ought to be, because that is, uh, you know, when, when people want to talk about economic imperialism, they don't typically talk about the method, and that is the method. That is the smoking gun of that, you know. And now we've, we've changed sort of gears dramatically here uh, by talking about that, so. No, I, I'm glad you did. <laughs> you can continue along those lines. Well, this it's... all interesting I, to me. Well, I mean, things are uh, priced in proportion to the dollar, so if the if the purchasing power of the dollar drops, right, if um, they're running their printing mills and they're printing, you know, an exorbitant amount of money, uh, then by relationship and exchange, you lose purchasing power when you're out there on the market looking, you know, to buy things in other, you know, in other markets and international trade. So if you are in Egypt and you need to buy grain from uh, Ethiopia, then the dollar losing its purchasing power actually reduces the amount of grain that you're going to be able to purchase from Ethiopia. And the relationship so is... yeah, It's just basically hyperinflation on like a global scale? Well, we through this method, we can actually import uh, or export inflation, uh, rather, uh, internationally. So we can monetize our debt and we can run the printing mills. And we do see inflation, but it's compartmentalized. So you're saying we export uh, inflation. We Our inflation that we caused, we can just pass it off on other countries. The... United States' greatest international export is inflation. Absolutely. That's something to take, uh, <laughs> to take very seriously, you know? And, and if we don't have that control anymore, then our economy is going to suffer greatly. Yeah, uh, in terms of the way that the system is set up now. I mean, the reserve, uh, there was a, there were safeties in place until, um, oh, geez, uh, 71, 72, when Nixon closed the gold window. We couldn't, we couldn't run quantitative easing to the extent that we're doing now. We couldn't leverage our currency to the extent that we're doing now because the currency was pegged to a hard asset. There are many great arguments to why a gold standard doesn't, isn't necessarily always good. It's not robust and you can't grow the money supply always in terms of uh, proportionally with goods and services. But the alternative that we've pursued through fiat currency has been so damaging to the world uh, and that why, we're, why we've can't been, it be gold and something else and something else? Well, that's what I mean. Even um, in uh, because you know the seems, Wizard of Oz, right? Well, I just want to bring up the point. Like, like uh, Bitcoin is a good example. Like, if you're an early adopter, then your your uh, value is going to skyrocket, right? If you yeah, invest in gold, if, yeah, because you you would have bought in at a much cheaper price than what it eventually settles to. Absolutely. So the Just, gold price could only go up if it becomes a standard, right? It depends, on, at, again, and this is a danger about what we were talking about before when I was saying that um, some things that look like a short thing always aren't necessarily a good thing because there's a difference between, and and this is a danger about com- commoditized currencies and stuff like that, there's a difference between owning gold and owning the share of a gold mine. Or You know what I mean? And uh, And... So a lot of uh, a lot of gold sellers, or, or like you see those like those uh, article, uh, those articles, those advertisements that pop up, buy gold and whatever else. What they're actually selling right. a lot of the times is like a pump and dump share 
of a, of a gold mining operation. Yeah, no, uh, it's rarely ever physical gold they want to see. <laughs> yeah. Um, that, that's, an, that's an aspect to take into consideration of that, too. But, uh, yeah, I mean, what you're saying, though, is, is something that, well, this is actually um, a big issue in American discourse about 100 years ago, and the reason that I brought up the uh, Wizard of Oz, uh, originally her slippers weren't ruby, they were silver, and that was an allegory for expanding the money, the, the money supply and including silver into the money supply along with gold. This was a very contentious thing back in the day. Uh, it was seen uh, paramount to, um, to other countries, and, and people were citing China as an example at the time, uh, because they engaged in what they thought was re- reducing the value of the money supply by introducing other precious metals. Uh, so now, I mean, we can understand the utility of expanding the money supply at times. I'm not one of those Austrians who believe that the money supply should never be tampered with or the money supply should never be expanded. Uh, and even, you know, I, I give some sort of credence to the Keynesian idea that the well should be primed once in a while. I mean, there's some legitimacy to these arguments. But, um, but no, what you're talking about, I think, is a legitimate argument. I mean, uh, the idea is a basket commoditized currency. And you don't even necessarily, and if it, and if it fluctuates and, in, in, in which it, it probably will, that could be damaging to price stability. So, and price stability is extremely important, you know, in terms of economic stability and everything else. And that's I, why some, I, that's why if you had a basket commoditized currency, everything in, in, in that bracket would have to be a hard asset, you know. So you can't have Bitcoin next to gold because Bitcoin is very easily manipulated um, with all the with all the um so limitations that they try to put in place to how much Bitcoin could be "quote unquote" mined in a year. I think there's a hard cap on it to one metric. I'm, I don't remember, but it's still a digital instrument. You know, it's it's not impossible to hack that. You can't you can't hack a gold reserve. You know what I mean? And make right. more gold appear. So, and uh, by basket, um, do you mean do you mean more than one item, more than one resource? Yes. So gold, silver, palladium, platinum. Don't you think it's eventually going to be like all the essentials? If they it could be, that way? you can even you, you can even include land uh, in that too, which is weird. But if it's municipal property, that might function. Uh, there's a lot of room for experimentation, but the problem with experimentation is that you know it it could fail for a certain aspect, and the baby would be thrown out with the bathwater. So whatever whatever change would have to be done would have to be. Um, a short-term solution to a permanent problem. And do you think, uh, sort of changing it a bit, do you think we're um, losing control of the currency? Without a doubt. Um, and do you think that's... I think, was that one of the reasons we invaded? <laughs> that's... <laughs> that's um, honestly, this is an extraordinary claim to which you don't have extraordinary evidence. But to, it's got to be multiple things, right? Because people always want to pin it on oil or just one thing. Well, oil, this is the means of the acquisition to the oil, even theoretically. I mean, in 2000, in, in 2000, uh, Saddam Hussein was talking very happily and, and very impassionately about making his oil only exchangeable for euro. Uh, the eurozone and the U.S. were head to head in 1998, 1999, and in, in 2000. And 
the euro seemed like the USD's greatest threat, its greatest competition. And considering the the almost at this time, well, this, the fifty-year sort of dominance or precedence that the dollar was was the reserve currency, that you could not strictly purchase an asset priced in any other currency besides the dollar. That would have if if other individual or other participating countries, many who have been on the losing side of the dollar exchange, you know, were to follow suit. Uh, it's very possible that the USD would have collapsed as a result. And I think so, that there's no surprise then that we see um, the Eurozone's large and standing reaction towards the Iraq war. I don't think it was necessarily ideological as much as it was some sort of uh, a strategic posturing, you know, because they had everything they had everything to gain by, by Saddam Hussein staying in power, you know. And now the Eurozone, and now the Euro is collapsing, and so is the Eurozone alongside with it. And is it because that they haven't had the ability strictly to control the monetization of their debt? Is it because that they haven't had the ability to export inflation at the rate that we do? It's very hard to tell, you know? These things become muddled. I just get the feeling when the, the movie's written in 20 years, it's going to be Saddam giving a speech about going to the Euro, and then it's going to be a smash cut to him being hanged. <laughs> yeah, Seth Rogen's going to be in it. It's going to be great. <laughs> but uh, no, uh, now with Libya too, and I, I will continue to talk about this and talk about Libya uh, because oh, well, we've talked about this before. I mean, how I view this as inconsistent, the outrage of anti-war liberals who turn a blind eye to the war crimes committed by you know their favorite administration. But Gaddafi was talking about adapting a North African currency that would be backed by hard assets to which all of his oil would be exchangeable for. Uh, jump cut, he's being fucking sodomized in the streets. With, a, with a knife, yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, again, this is, these are fucking extra, these are, exorb, these are huge claims to make and I don't have the smoking gun evidence to fucking condemn anyone, but, but I, I have, think I that have it's consistent. thought about it and I just get this feeling that, like, if you're truly a, like a half decent person, you won't die with a knife in your asshole. <laughs> like that, like no That's one. That's a good. hero's death. <laughs> I remember that passage from the Iliad. Yeah. Like, I wonder if that's ever happened where someone died that death after being like a really sensitive, caring dude. <laughs> Maybe he wanted it. There are plenty of, you know masochists out there. But uh, no, I don't think Gaddafi was a sensitive or nice dude. I think he was a moderate, though, uh, comparatively to... Uh, other people in the region? Uh, yeah, uh, to, to you know other parties in that part of the world. Um, he still probably had rape rooms and wasn't a good dude to have dinner with, you know? Yeah. I prob- but, uh, but yeah, I mean, it, it, his his disposition couldn't be more about convenience that they fucking installed a Slim Jim rack in the serving machine in his palace. Uh, or his, his overthrow, rather. So, I mean, it's it, it, it was a matter of... Um, yeah, I, I do think, and I, and, I, and I will make the claim that I do think that the conflict in Libya was a matter of economic imperialism. And it's a shame that more... It, because the claim of economic imperialism has long been standing... Um, a progressive liberal stance. It's a shame that more libertarians aren't, you know, or, you know, uh, economically right-leaning individuals aren't more willing to point that finger 
and call a fucking spade a spade when it is one, you know? Well, they just don't know this stuff. I mean, I don't know this stuff. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, Rickards is, uh, Jim Rickards is a bit Austrian, and uh, it, it depends, too, because, you know, there's a tremendous amount of nuance in in uh, and right, right-leaning economics, you know, and, you know, I, I don't just think like most that, of those individuals get along with one another. I just like that they lack the common sense to not have a myopic view of things. Well, I was actually just thinking about this today. Um, economics is one of the only sciences where Occam's razor is not applicable. It's rarely the most simple explanation, you know? It's because of the nature and the complexity and the, and the interwovenness uh, of, of how these mechanics sort of relate to one another. Uh, these systems are so compounded that it's it's nearly impossible to untangle them all. It's like you know, uh, so you ma- so many strands of spaghetti on your plate. You know, it's much easier to eat them all at once. Would you say them. that economics is the closest thing we have to a representation of a like a global tug of war uh, dealing with power, but with numbers? I've always, in its purest form, I it's hard. To call it a hard science because you're dealing, uh, with human beings and their values are, there's a subjective utility to human values. You know what I mean? There's, and that's always going to be the X variable when you're trying to account for human action. But are you Uh, saying the market would represent humans at like their most, uh, unstable and unpredictable or? Um. Yeah, I, mean, I think that I think the market just sort of represents that, and that's the failure of uh, quantitative economics that tries to create models that can accurately represent unstable and fallible and irrational human beings. It's impossible to do so, at least yet. When cognitive neuroscience develops to the point where we can read the human mind like a fucking book, maybe not so. But well, when that happens, we- then why go on living? <laughs> yeah, really. When life loses all mystery and allure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, really. But um, until that point, you know, and that's why I consider, and, and you know, the words of uh, von Mises, economics is the science of human action. And humans are very unpredictable. And it is because humans practice that, um, again, at the risk of being over fucking wordy that they practice that subjective utility of their values, uh, that it's impossible to accurately a hundred percent of the time to be able to model human action, uh, theoretically, you know, because people are, have the propensity for irrationality, you know, in decision making. Yeah. So. Okay. So what's your college background? Um, I did a year and a half of community college in which I attended a course at Vassar, uh, for, for about a semester. And then I left to move to Brooklyn to play music and work in sales, work in sales first and then play music. So you don't have a call, uh, like a proper university education? Nope. Um, mostly not make any sense. Uh, and, uh. Yeah, I mean, it was, it, this was in 2006, you know, 2007 into 2008. And I think what was largely influential and what factored into my decision of not sticking with it was that, um, there was a, you know, during the, oh, the whole, um, economic meltdown and everything else, there was a lot of talk about the student debt bubble 
and about the sort of disproportionate rate at which people spend or owe tremendous amounts of money in student debts versus the lack of employment options when they leave college. And I looked at what I was studying and what I was what I, what I really wanted to do was play music. But what I was studying was economics and journalism and a number of things which weren't necessarily going to land me into a direct career. Uh, so for that reason, I decided to opt out because I, at that time, was just did not view finishing college as a means to the end of my goal. You know, if I, and that is to say that if I desire to be a doctor, then, you know, obviously there are, are professions in which credentials are extremely important, you know, Good. uh, but this isn't the twenties or thirties anymore. We all carry essentially was paramount to the library of Alexandria in our pockets at all times. Uh, for the sake of being a well-rounded and introspective and extrospective individual and obtaining knowledge and, and learning, I didn't think that <laughs> uh, finishing the route of community college and then doing a, and getting my bachelor's at a, a state school is necessarily the most advantageous thing for me. So No, it seems like a gamble like anything else now. Yeah, well, it, it, I think... The added emphasis on obtaining a college education is extremely detrimental to a lot of people. The amount of people that I know who went to school for art, you know what I mean, or, or whatever else, yeah. and you don't, I don't think you need a college education to be an artist. I think you just need to be an art, you know, just put a tremendous amount of work into your craft and have perspective. That is to say that, I mean, that's not to say that I don't believe in tutelage. I've learned a tremendous amount from other individuals, um, in terms of just uh, musicality and whatever else, I you know I took lessons and I think that I think that learning under someone is important, but you don't need to pay uh, you don't you don't need to pay a hundred thousand dollars a year you know to be able to achieve that. So in, in in terms of I was studying economics and I analyzed what I was doing in terms of strict economics and I said you know what this doesn't make sense. So, but if my career goals ever change, you know what I mean. If I decide that I want to teach, then I would have no problem with going back and, you know, obtaining uh, a master's or a doctorate. And and you just got to wonder what that money would have done if you had chosen to spend it on something else, something you yourself decided. Like, yeah, like, you know, investing in opening a business or, you know, I essentially everyone is walking around, well, a lot of people who would leave school now are walking around with uh, mortgages but no house to show for it, you know? Yeah. Uh, a mortgage and no walls. Which is not good. I mean, there is, uh, again, in terms of economics, there is seemingly, uh, the price, the price of a college education isn't mark to market. The, there's a lot of things that would indicate that the reason that prices continue to go up every year is because there is no honest market in terms of, uh, uh of education across the board, at least in this country. Uh, so. Yeah, it's, it's, it's fucking nebulous and it's, uh, stealing a tremendous amount of wealth from our generation and from the generation to come, you know, next and from the youngest and most disenfranchised individuals. You know, it's, a, it's, it's kind of a form of wealth appropriation, but this is just the manner in which our economy is set up now. So I remember once I was watching the news and I saw some guy who, uh, he basically got fucked over by the college system to the tune of, say, like 120000 And uh, I just told my friend, that's your education right there. Like, that's the real world. It's going to yeah. fuck you over. Yeah, really. 
I think that that's one of the better educations that you can get. I also, I mean, I I think the greatest thing, I was um, a bit of an egalitarian socialist when I was 15, 16, and 17. Uh, I picked up Ayn Rand when I was, uh, ha-ha, when I was 18, and I fucking swung radically towards, um, you know, the other, the other extreme. Well, I I don't like the fact that a lot of people will just do the blanket dismissal of anything she says. You know what? She was a brilliant woman, and she was a deeply flawed woman, but some of the contributions that she made to Western philosophy are some of the most important. Uh, we We should do a discussion one day in which we fucking dismantle and undress Rand and actually talk about some of the more fucking heinous things she said and some of the more profound and amazing she was uh, well. I can't, I can't hang with you in this area. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's um, it's I have my criticisms, but my criticisms aren't based in um, uh, straw manning and, and uh, demagoguing, you know, which I think it's very popular. But she kind of brought. Um, we'll talk. <laughs> I could talk about this for fucking ever. So I don't want to say too much. But um, she was a dogmatist, and she chose to fight a battle of semantics. She used words like selfishness instead of rational self-interest. And because of that, she opened herself to misinterpretation. Yeah. Uh, and that was her, and that was her fatal flaw. And she refused to, and she refused to engage in pluralism. You know, she was a radical extremist. And, uh, that's definitely something that, that deserves a very heavy fucking scrutiny and criticism because that, that doesn't really yeah, but English wasn't even her first language. No. And she was and, fighting that fight. Yeah, exactly. And not only that, but we have to sort of take into account um, her experiences with what the state where she came from. With, you know, uh, She watched the Bolshevik Revolution. She watched her family become destroyed because of the emergence of communism in Russia. And um, she formed a very rigid opinion on things like communism or statism or socialism uh, as a result of her direct experiences. And and uh, We the Living is a, is a pretty decent book uh, as a fiction sort of detailing her experiences and, and her living through that. And I think if, if, if we are to be empathetic human beings and we should try to understand where she was coming from because she was very much um, a victim of that environment at that time, you know. So it's not hard to see why she would swing radically towards uh, towards towards uh, individual liberty after, you know, living through the horrors of that society, of, of those times. And shit. So, you know, perspective is a very useful tool. And so is empathy when we sort of uh, try to analyze these these uh, uh, contemptuous and, and often controversial individuals, you know. Well, I want your uh, opinion on another matter. Go on. Um, unfortunately, it's it's not a light issue. So, uh, oh joy! <laughs> Looking forward to but, but you seem fired up. So, uh, I was wondering uh, what you think about this uh, co- uh, this campus rape thing. Uh, the Rolling Stone thing. Well, no, well, not that particularly, but the just the one in five statistic for rape 
Like the statistics are trumping out would insinuate that rape on campus is more prevalent than that in the Congo during that whole thing that happened in the Congo. That but one I, time. I mean, I think it's pretty insane that our very own president would like get on a platform and quote this. Well, he's trying to appeal to his voting base. I actually, yeah. I, if you look over those statistics, um, and it's I, I, I kind of. I, I peeled them apart and I looked through those statistics and everything else and um, they the the lion's share of that percentage accounts for non-physical uh, sexual harassment. So the language in which they quantify or qualify rape is nebulous and in their own statistical evidence that they cited, it was non-physical rape, which I don't understand how rape can be non-physical. Uh, but people get is, really, like, uh, they twist the wording so they can be more impassioned about something. This is Michel Foucault, you know? This is the whole idea of the power dialectic in that redefinition is the key to winning an argument. If you can control the terminology, you can control the conversation. But I think if you've got a, like, if you got a really simple way of putting it, then you can destroy that. Because, uh, like, I read an argument, basically, it came down to this. Uh, the person said, imagine if it were murder. One in five children were murdered when you sent them to college. No one would send their son or daughter to school. Yeah. And, and I think that's basically it. And the, and the thing I want to bring to it is that would mean that we literally have, like, a Russian roulette of rape at every college in America. <laughs> Well, that's what the, that's what their statistics would would imply. But um, it's just the it's just the way that they define rape has become so ambiguous to the point where it doesn't actually mean rape. Uh, in their own, I mean, they they in their in the polling, they one of the questions was like, "Have you ever felt uh, uncomfortable in a in a situation with uh, with uh, someone else on campus sexually?" Have you ever felt, you know, uh, have you ever been, uh, verbally Here. harassed have by been, uh, someone on campus? And then they call verbal harassment and they go through the rigmarole to define this and put this into their statistic evidence. Have you saying ever been, that uh, this is rape. Have you and, ever been peer pressured to do something you don't want to do? Are you asking me or are you no, that, that's, that's the argument. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. And, and, uh, and, and the answer to your question is yes. But, uh, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, yeah, that's the thing. And, uh, there's a lot of hysteria about this and it's difficult to talk to, uh, talk to this, uh, talk about this subject with people without inciting a lot of emotions because, you know, there, I understand the anxiety and I understand how innate that is in a, um, evolutionary psychological sort of context. You know what I mean? Uh, I think, that it's 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 primordial and it's on a very subconscious level that sort of fear of of being raped. Um, there once upon a time, if you were impregnated by a undesirable man, that was a death sentence. If you were impregnated by a man who cannot defend you, who is weak, who is sick, or whatever else, you would die as a result of that. He wouldn't be able to provide for you. We're talking about pre-agrarian societies, with the inception or the infancy of our species. I'm not saying this as a justification to why rape is relative. Rape is fucking terrible across the board, but it, it there there's I, I'm just saying that this is 
I understand emphatically um, how deep this runs and and um, the anxieties of some women. You know, it's it is it is it's 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 human. It's in, inexorably human that that fear. Um, but and I, I also think there's some ugly side to it, like uh, where couldn't it just be that uh, people who have trouble getting laid want to police sex to make it some sort of advantage for themselves? Well, that's always the case, and I feel like <laughs> in certain realms of identity politics, as it is today, uh, much of it is projection of their own individual insecurities, and I try to abstain from long-standing um, uh, sort of uh, analysis of the psychologies of large groups of people because they're often reductions and they're often inadequate. But just in terms of the battles that a lot of those people choose to have, it would seem that policing behavior comes from, you know, as a simple and reductionist point to contradict myself, it seems that a lot of their desire to police the behavior of others comes from their own sort of feelings of inadequacy, which... And I think a lot of it has to do with sort of, uh, people have a hard time dealing with fantasy versus reality because I just get the feeling a lot of people, um, like sex is such a tantalizing topic, but when you mar it with something horrible and atrocious, then like it gets confusing like, what opinion you have on it. Yeah. Are you Which tapping is, me out? Yeah, it's kind of it's kind of flickering in and out. Oh, my voice? Yeah, uh, I think the connection is kind of... Can you hear me? Uh, yeah. Alright, we're back. We're back. Uh, repeat what you just said, because I didn't... I kind of missed it. Uh, basically, I think there's... Uh, people get really confused, because... In, in fantasy, people are like... Um, they got a blank campus where no one's going to judge them. And they can put all sorts of fucked up stuff in their fantasies and do whatever they want. And, and of course, when you know about the realities of some sexual behavior, which is horrid, like rape or any sort of sexual abuse, it, I mean, you can't, like, you can't tell me that there's not some conflict in a lot of people when we have, Fifty Shades of Grey making $90 million in a weekend. Yeah. And yet this whole anti-rape culture thing, that there's going to create a neurosis in a lot of people a of what they want. A severe and crippling uh, confliction in which they believe that one thing is moral, but they innately desire the other. Um, Ayn Rand, to go back on Ayn Rand, in the book The Fountainhead, there was a rape scene. And people use, often use this as a means to display why she was a monster. Uh, but if you were to read um, her, any biographies on her, in which she details her relationships with Nathaniel Brandon or Frank O'Connor, Frank O'Connor was her husband, and Nathaniel Brandon was the motherfucker she was cheating on her husband with, who was, who was a brilliant psychologist in his own right. She often talked about the reason that she decided to have an affair with Nathaniel Brandon was that Frank O'Connor wouldn't take her. Uh, as 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 aggressive and, and dominant as she was in discourse, Ayn Rand had the desire to be dominated sexually. She wanted to be taken. She wanted to be dominated by her sexual partner. And I think that 
not all women, maybe not even most women, but in large groups of women that that is a permeating sort of desire, uh, there is such thing as rape fantasy in women. Uh, if you ever look through the questions section on OkCupid, <laughs> or, or something similar, not to say that I do that, but if you were to do that, there is a question with, do you have rape fantasies? And you would not fucking believe the amount of women that say yes. Well, and of course, but that demographic is probably like college students, like more uh, heady, smarter women, right? You would be surprised how wide that demographic goes, and that's why I think Fifty Shades of Grey appeals to so many bored housewives. And, and I think that's another reason why there's all this hysteria about it. And and I mean hysteria in like the one in five statistic, which I think is hysteria. Yeah, and, and I want to clarify, dear listener, I am not saying that women desire to be raped. I'm right, they <laughs> just, desire yeah, just, the fantasy of like some really rough and tumble stuff. Yes, exactly. It's it's fantasy, you know. Um, women who I don't I believe that the majority of women who have rape fantasies, when confronted with an actual rapist, that would probably be fucking terrifying and an awful and a traumatic experience. I think the rape fantasies they want to engage in would probably be with their partners or someone that they could set to have sex with. So uh but but yeah, I yeah, fantasy is a huge element of a lot of this. And so is escapism and when you look at the happiness indexes and, and everything else in which <laughs> and those and those metrics are fucking questionable to begin with, but when you see I the closest thing that we have to a, a quantifiable measure of happiness and how it's been declining in the Western world for the past two decades, it's not too difficult to discern why people have such a strong desire to engage in fantasy. I think it's in tandem with their unhappiness and their own sort of feelings of uh of uh uh, stasis, uh, inadequacy. All rooted in expectation, like a lot of excess it is. Sure. expectation. Yeah, we. I mean, we. Our generation has been sold in the in the in the fucking armpit of the self esteem movement. The whole idea that you should tell children they could be whatever they fucking want to be when that's not necessarily the case. I think that with our generation, I think that I. I don't think that it's necessarily a stretch to say that our the misery of our generation is parallel to the expectations that we were sold in childhood you know when we were constantly reinforced that we're all special we're all unique we're all exceptional um without contextualizing that you know and that and now is it any wonder that narcissism is so fucking prevalent in our society and especially amongst our generation a, a point I like to make is uh, everyone who made it gets to say, follow your dreams. And But there's no one interviewing, like, a skeleton on a sidewalk of some dude who starved to death. And, like, <laughs> what, what advice would you give? <laughs> Survive, work, do what you need to do to put food on your table. Imagine if that was the advice dolled out to serfs in the 13th century. Follow your dreams, they said. <laughs> And they were promptly cut down by the fucking knight errants on the hell for disobeying their master. No, it's um, it's a modern, it's a modern idea that we can all, you know, and that's why it's important to have a rational sense of self-esteem. You know what I mean? And and by knowing where we excel and also knowing our shortcomings, because if we don't have sight of what we can't do, um, then we will pinwheel in every fucking direction. Uh, 
with no sort of grounded perspective on where we excel. And that's important. If you're told that you can do anything when you physically can't do anything, if I'm told I have the physical, I have the, the physical prowess of a, of a, of a fucking honey badger, if I'm told that I can be a great athlete if I wanted to be, that person would be fucking lying to me. I'm 5'7 and 120 pounds. You know, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to be a football star, no matter how much someone wants to reinforce my fucking self-esteem. Yeah, I mean, the expectations (laughs) that we have to set for people have to be grounded in reality, you know? I think uh, people should maybe have, like, a base, realistic goal where, if say, they're an artist. If they can make a living off of it, then they're living the dream. Uh, That's what I think, you know? The moment, the moment I can pay my bills just playing music would, that's, it doesn't matter, um, how renowned I am, how successful, uh, how much economic power I demand. If I'm just able to scrape by the bare minimum and pay bills doing something that I love, that is happiness, you know? But, uh, that's an important perspective and we have, in our generation and amongst 20-somethings and, and, and people who are younger and even some 30-somethings, they don't make that correlation between, you know, their craft and survival. Um, some people think that they have to, that in the pursuit of their art, that means that they're going to live a, uh, in a facing sacrificial life in which they never make any money or they never, you know, prosper or they never achieve any commercial or economic success. And that bill that's sold to people is fucking contrary to what we've been seeing in the information revolution, you know, where someone could put up a Kickstarter, you can put up your own album, you don't have to go through record labels, you don't have to go through um, art exhibition or gallery owners, you know what I mean, to, to pray that they're going to put your painting up. You can just put it up on Tumblr or wherever the fuck else if you want people to see your work. There's the the playing field has never been this leveled before in the history of humanity, you know. There's never been a a greater time for someone to make a living off of their craft, and people can just invent jobs now in in a capacity that never existed before. So, and basically, the advice is just temper your expectations. Yes, and and do not feel entitled. Uh, to success and do not feel that, you know, just because you feel that you are an incredibly nuanced or talented artist, do not then therefore go into the market expecting, you know, incredible success that comes with hard work, very excruciating work, <laughs> you know, hours and hours and hours and hours and hours of dedication and, and, and toil. Mark, uh, Mark, Mike Rowe had a good quote about it where he basically just said, don't follow your dreams, but take them with you. Yeah, that's a that's a good thing to say. I, I kind of like that. We lose sight, and this is something that we've talked about in the past. We lose sight about how fresh we are out of the fucking jungle. Yeah. And this is the disillusionment of living in a post enlightenment society, or post, or rather, post uh, uh, industrial society, and where I talk to people, people that are very intelligent, people that are, you know, quick and knowledgeable. And they have a fantasy in what they believe the pre-industrial world was. They don't realize how fucking heinous it was to live in any time besides now. Yeah. You know? 
And uh, they don't understand, and some people romanticize the days of tribal living, and they don't understand that 20 hours of the day you're chasing something with a stick so you can kill it so your family could eat. And then, well, you, this... would die, then you would die of dysentery at 25 or 30. Now, yeah, this is how our species lived for most of the time. It's pretty contrary to the punk rock ideal. It, it's it's the stark opposite, and I think the, the I think it's it's gone to such an extreme that if you want to be a counterculture revolutionary in 2015, you should work hard and value individual responsibility. Isn't that isn't that interesting? That the most punk rock thing that you can be is fucking, you know, a, a, a hardworking Samaritan. But fuck corporations, right? Right. Right. <laughs> it's just sure. funny to think how they would have all... They wouldn't have been born to begin with if it weren't for them. And it depends. There's there's valid... I mean, I do think that... And again, this is an ex- extraordinary claim, but I think in terms of straight... In strict semantics, we live in a corporate fascist state. Uh, but that doesn't mean that corporations are inherently wrong or that they're bad just because they're corporations... Corporations in 2015 are bad because shareholder law makes it so that if you're a corporate executive, you have more power than the owners of the company, who would be the shareholders in a publicly traded company. That's paramount to hiring a gardener, and he gets to tell you when he gets to fuck your wife. <laughs> you know? Well, you're That's basically like, allowing uh, all of them to please themselves. Yeah. I mean, a, a corporate officer is a custodian. You know, they're there to make sure that the company doesn't run into the fucking ground, but they ultimately have uh, complete and total control of almost every aspect to the way the business operates, to the to the options and payouts of stock dividends. So that's the insanity of our time, and the insanity of corporate law reflects uh, how broken our economy is. So when people are anti-corporate, I... I don't dismiss them, you know, out of, out of hand, but their in, the inability to contextualize the sort of anti-corporate mentality is very much so a case of, of um, ignorance through omission or just a willful ignorance. You're, you're killing my blind prejudice buzz. <laughs> yeah, it's complex. There's some good corporations out there. There's some bad corporations out there. I don't believe corporations are people, you know, I believe... Uh, that's a ridiculous concept, too, and that's that's just a matter of fucking legal wizardry in which, you know, they're trying to hide, you know, any semblance of fucking individual accountability inside of those companies. Oh, sue the company, don't sue the corporation, don't sue me. I had no part in it, even though it was their actions that defrauded individuals or committed fucking, you know, heinous financial crimes. And it's, it's skirting responsibility, but... uh but I always see some sort of balance to it as well. Like, I don't get when people ask for, like, where's my bailout, and yet bankruptcy is so popular. Well, what's even more popular than bankruptcy is corporate corporate bailouts, uh, bank bailouts, the idea of too big to fail. Um, I think... I'm, but isn't again, it just like a microcosm of just more intelligent people who are shitty? Who are exploiting the system? <laughs> yeah, and that's why the the fellows at Enron were dubbed the smartest men in the room. And so it's always been the case. Yeah, they were for a while. <laughs> for a while, 
Until they started naming all those satellite companies out of Star Wars movies because they ran out of fucking names for their frauds. I don't know if you ever saw that. Was that the details of, of where they're channeling all that, all the, um, well, well, you know, they're, they're cooking stock prices and whatever else. And one of the ways that they were doing that was by, uh, shooting up satellite or sister companies that didn't actually exist so they can sort of move the numbers towards there. And their names shit like fucking Jedi Incorporated and like, and like Wookiee Unlimited. And there was like five or six <laughs> names that were strictly Star Wars related. And it's like that motherfucker was so cocky and so lazy, as intelligent as he might have been, you know? Yeah, I remember seeing <laughs> the, uh, the documentary. Is that what ultimately brought them down? What, what was the main? <laughs> I'm not sure, but if I was a state auditor, that would have fucking raised my eyebrows. <laughs> yeah. I'm not sure. I, I do remember being forced to watch that documentary a very long time ago, but uh, I thought that was, I, th- I still think that's funny. Oh, uh, God. Right, the but... hubris, the hubris of intelligent men, you know? Uh, but to bring this back to music, how many bands are you in right now? Just one? Uh, I'm in one. Uh, I'm in one that's like, you know, finished, I guess you can say, or just like at the rate right now where we're writing a second thing and getting ready to tour and i play bass in that one and i and that's nerve shatter and that's a fucking terrible name and i hate it i liked nerd smasher but (laughs) it wasn't to be and i uh, just started a new project which is going to consume my next six months and that's called trigger warning (laughs) and the name of the ep is going to be check your white male riffage i like that yeah so I hope to anger people with that. So. Are you okay if I, if I um, use some nerve shatter as my intro? Go for it. To your heart's content. And outro. <laughs> Absolutely.